Good evening and welcome to a very special collaboration between WTHK, the podcast for Overtake Motorsport, and of course, my and my brother's YouTube channel, The Brothers Hunt. Now, there are very few constructors that are truly synonymous with Formula One. Over 71 years in our beloved sport, there have been many teams entering with high expectations. Many of these have come and gone, and some have even branched into other motorsports and found considerable success. Others have become commercially successful and have made road cars for many people to be using. However, despite a short tenure in the BTCC and, more recently, providing aid with the COVID-19 pandemic, Williams remains a team that is defined by its roots in Formula One. Now, of course, Williams is a team that, since its introduction in the 1977 Spanish Grand Prix, has seen 768 Grand Prix entries, nine Constructors World Championships, seven Drivers World Championships, 128 pole positions, 114 wins, 133 fastest laps, and 313 podiums, with many drivers such as Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna, Piers Courage, Nelson Piquet, Alain Prost, Ricardo Patrese, Alan Jones, Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve, and David Coulthard all racing for this illustrious name. And this all began with one very dedicated individual, a man who was so dedicated, devoted, and passionate about motorsport with one humble drive in a drive in a Jaguar XK150. This man was Frank Williams, and unfortunately, on November the 28th, 2021, he passed away. Tonight, myself, my brother, and our good friend Pedro will be discussing not only the success of this amazing motorsport team, but our personal favorite moments of this incredible man and the team he created from absolutely nothing. Good evening, gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode. How are you both doing tonight? Very well. I am doing well. I'm, I'm still shocked and quite sad about Frank Williams, uh, Frank Williams is passing, but I'm here. I'm I'm holding on. Yeah, of course. It's one of these things. I as with motorsport in general, when the passing of somebody happens, you assume it's going to be in something of a dramatic circumstance. A natural passing in this instance, I feel like hasn't been this massive since possibly Charlie Whiting, uh, Sid Watkins. It's, it's one of those quite insane moments where somebody who's been such a stalwart of Formula One, so imagine they're not there anymore. It's kind of hard to wrap your head, heads around, right? Yes. Yeah. I'd, yeah. Hmm. However, well, we, we do, we talk, we do, this is on Frank Williams and we know what he's done in the sport and it is magnificent. But this, the only comparable I can probably think of a team owner would be Enzo Ferrari. Absolutely. And but with Enzo Ferrari... With Enzo Ferrari, said, being well, around was, then. Oops. <laughs> sorry. With Enzo sorry. Ferrari, there was a significant gravitar before he entered Formula One and during Formula One anyway. I know obviously he yeah, I know his priority was Formula One. Williams or Frank Williams, F1 was basically the end game from the very start. That was all he was focused on, right? Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes, absolutely. But it's the it's the only comparison I can make in terms of a team owner the and the importance that that owner had on the sport of F1. Mm. So it's, I can't think of anyone else who'd be, I know some people say Ken Tyrrell potentially and Colin Chapman, but it's, I think the longevity of both Ferrari and particularly Frank Williams into the modern era is almost unsurpassable. I completely understand. Of course, and with that comes the, he, he always had the name of the last privateer in Formula One. The last real, the last stalwart of that side, and up until uh, Doriton bought it over, that was still the case, really. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's it's such a 
unique place to be, not only in motorsports, but in sports in general. Yeah, absolutely. So we've started on a rather somber note, which of course is to be expected with this uh, obituary episode, should we say, of Frank Williams. However, we're going to be discussing our three personal favourite moments. And between us, we're not going to rank it. We're not going to say what is the best overall. We're just going to talk about three moments where Williams have stood out to us personally. Um, I'm going to kick it off. Uh, just to give you give you guys a bit of time just to you know get your thoughts ready. Um, one for me personally, and this is an incredibly personal view. This is one that carries on for me incredibly supremely. Um, was at the 2015 British Grand Prix. Uh, Alex knows exactly where I'm going with this. Um, Williams at this point, when I joined, when I properly joined F1 as a fan, I knew of their name from the old F1 games. I knew Damon Hill was a champion because of F1 97. I had of Williams driver number one because Jacques Villeneuve had some weird copyright thing against his name. And when I joined F1, to see the gorgeous uh, Royal Bank of Scotland cars doing quite so badly was really bizarre. 2012 came around and of course we had Maldonado almost getting some, almost doubling the points the last, I think last year in one race, but then crashing out in Australia. We saw a shock race win in Spain, which was incredible to see. But then when we went into the hybrid area and we saw one of my favorite liveries, the Martini Williams livery, they suddenly had a burst of energy. The Mercedes engines really brought them up to the next level. And at the 2015 British Grand Prix, Alex and myself, my family and my cousin, we saw both Williams storm into the lead into the first corner. And I have a video on my, I, I, tried, I, like, I, I love to take lots of videos of these moments. I was recording the start and I got so distracted, the camera pans down to my feet. And all you can hear is me and Alex going, what, what, it's the Williams! Ah! And it's screaming at this Williams one, two, as a belt into the first corner. And as an overall visceral experience, that is Williams to me. Just being so happy that home Grand Prix, seeing the, the two white cars, one and two. That is my favorite subjective moment of Williams overall. Just seeing that and the excitement, it was gutting they couldn't get a podium finish. But just to see that move, see that happen was incredible to me. Alex, you were there. What, what are your memories of it? It was probably one of the most epic moments I think I've been present at an F1 Grand Prix. I went to four, but it's, it, and given the ones we've been to, that stands out as a major memory. I don't think you'd get that reaction if it was another team. If it was Ferrari that did it, you'd get the cheers because, oh, Mercedes aren't winning. But to get that reaction out, to get the reaction we, we in, took part in, was because it's Williams and specifically for that reason even McLaren wouldn't get that kind of cheering from us for that sort of thing so it's they they thought wow it was just epic wasn't it, it was just watching the start and they by the time they got to the first corner they're not only one two they're one two by a long way <laughs> Massa is taken the lead and has gone at that point <laughs> and it's fantastic hmm. I say Pedro were you watching the races at that point or was this uh, was this time that uh, skipped by you I, I I think I remember that, but I, I don't remember watching the race live. <laughs> you would have been quite young then, so it's uh, you are forgiven. <laughs> Even younger, I guess. Exactly. Oh, straight in. <laughs> <laughs> right, who's, that's, that's, that's my first one. Who's got one they'd like to share? I have one. Um, this is more about Frank himself rather than, than Williams, the team. But just the fact that he was able to do everything he did i mean that that connected with me really quick like 
I don't know, I think I just watched F1 for a month when I learned his history and everything he had to go through. Um, to me, and, and this is a very, very personal thing, uh, you don't know it. I think I hadn't told you this, but I was not supposed um, to talk, walk, or even think. I was uh, destined uh, by a to basically my my life in a wheelchair and have the life expectancy of uh, 18 years uh, or something like that. So seeing someone that not only endure everything and, and, and defy every single odd, he also did everything in his power to live his passion and do the thing he loved every single day. So to me, that, that will stay with me forever. And he'll be my favorite motorsport personality forever for that single reason wow well <laughs> bloody hell <laughs> alex what are you going to follow up with that <laughs> that's thank you very uh, much for sharing pedro that's incredibly deep and personal of you that's lovely to yeah. hear this one won't be i'm afraid from me <laughs> <laughs> not on that level uh it is one of the first memories of williams in the modern era so post renault but before the cosworth and the toyota engine bit it's Williams BMW, that lovely blue and white livery, and Montoya throwing it down the inside at Interlagos on Michael Schumacher and making <laughs> Schumacher look a bit silly. There you go. It was yeah. amazing. It was. I remember it clearly because I also remember we were we were watching. I don't know if you were watching it, Chris, but I was watching it, and I remember cheering. I would have been what ten, and I remember Dad going yes. Probably because it was a Williams on Schumacher and making Schumacher look silly, but it was what you, yeah, the way Montoya was, the way Williams are remembered, that move is Williams personified on a racetrack for me, which is balls to the wall, take no prisoners, clean move, and boom, there we go. Let's get on with this and win this race. Yeah. Ironically enough, he didn't win the race, but that moment was stunning. Yeah, hmm. I know what you mean. The it's weird when a Williams car pulls off a move for some reason because of the history of the drivers that have pulled off some of those moves before. It somewhat amplifies the impressiveness of it. There have been some fantastic Williams overtakes, but when it's a it seems that the commentators you, you can really get your hand and a Williams, you know, it's it's weird. It lends itself so well to those moments. I know exactly what you're talking about, and yeah. Hopefully, we'll be seeing many more of those to come as well in future. Yeah. <laughs> I think once this album trying to go around the outside of Hamilton. <laughs> oh God! It's one thing to do that in a Red Bull. Imagine what happens. It happens in a Williams. Austria intensifies. <laughs> Brazil intensifies. Oh no! I think. Um, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one thing I discovered reasonably recently about Frank Williams, which has given me a bit more, uh, well, I say a bit more, quite a bit more respect for the man. I mean, obviously we know Frank Williams had, he had the steely determination of somebody who knew exactly where they wanted to be and what they wanted to do. And they wouldn't let anything get in the way of that. And uh, he was somebody who I believe he worked as a grocery delivery man for quite a long time uh, as in his, one of his foot in his formative years. And eventually after, you know, you know, kind of getting into Formula 3, into Formula 2, and then finding Pierre's courage and going into Formula 1 with a few entries. He did run across hard times on a few occasions. And there was one time, reportedly, and I'm believing this to be entirely true, 
uh, he lost his office basically due to lack of funds and was essentially working out of a telephone box uh, in London. And he had all of his paperwork there, was making all of the phone calls out of one single telephone box. And this was before any true proper success or true proper yield for all of his efforts. And he had some, I think he had some podiums at that point, but even then that was a one driver team uh, in a few one-off races in the mid seventies, where obviously everything's a little bit more, everything's a little bit more drastic than maybe we would consider it now. Um, but just the idea that he was so determined to keep it going that he had lost almost everything. I say lost almost everything. Lost almost everything from a constructor's point of view. Was working out of a phone box. Can, I, can you imagine the picture of Frank Williams in a phone box, phone up to the ear, papers literally writing against the like against the windows, that sort of thing. That's incredible. And I'm glad he had the success afterwards to you know, yield for it because I'm sure there's been many there's been many instances where maybe people have done this sort of thing and not uh, haven't found success. Just to think that he got through that and found the successes, as I said, nine constructors championships, seven drivers world championships. To draw it back to that moment, I consider that absolutely incredible. Like I I I can't imagine I can't imagine I obviously I can't imagine Formula One being like that now. We're in such a money-driven environment, there's no way that could ever possibly happen, especially not for a privateer team. But to have it going down that specifically and making it work from that, that's phenomenal that's unlike anything well chris you just asked the question can you imagine frank williams doing that and uh, the answer is yes yes <laughs> because he's that kind of person i couldn't imagine enzo ferrari doing that i couldn't imagine well might imagine zach brown doing it but I, it, you Not can't imagine <laughs> no exactly i can't imagine total wolf doing that either hmm. yeah it is such a frank williams thing to do yeah. It's, you've got to be of that era. So you, I could imagine Jack Brabham doing that sort of thing, probably even Colin Chapman potentially, yeah. and even Tony Vanderbilt. But it's it's not glamorous, but it's effective. Hmm. Whether you whether get it being in that position is a to get to that position is a good thing or not is not so good. But he was in that position and had that much love that he was just never going to stop doing it. You know, bizarrely, you might have just accidentally hit the nail on the head. Not glamorous, but effective. Accidentally, that was purely on purpose. <laughs> Let's think about it. Not glamorous, but effective. I mean, we saw glamorous yes. and not effective with Hesketh. <laughs> um, that's a, oh, they won a race. I'd say that's effective. <laughs> <laughs> it is for the alcohol in this time. <laughs> I think interesting. Not glamorous, but effective. That kind of sums it up. I mean, there's a. There's a great quote from um, Frank's late wife who said that actually Frank Williams might always been happiest when he was struggling. Actually, when his team weren't quite there. They're apparently, uh, she used to say that actually when he was, when they were winning the championships, he's kind of like, mm. kind of just missing a little something, missing a bit of impetus. When he had something to climb towards to achieve, that was when he was his strongest. So maybe that in itself is actually a bit more proof of that. True. I think a shout out also needs to go to Bernie Eccleston on the basis that he funded Frank Williams quite a lot. Really, in terms of loans, so Frank would, I think he would. It was an interview Bernie did with Sky Sports, and it was Frank would ask for two thousand pounds or something for an engine. He'd pay the loan back, and then the next day ask for two and a half thousand pounds, and then pay that back. <laughs> and if you and Bernie was clever enough to realise that he needed people like Frank Williams in the sport to make it entertaining for everyone and to be competitive. So it, had it not been for him, I don't think Williams racing would be the uh, the team it is today or was in the 80s and 90s 
but but if we go back to that it's not glamorous but effective that's williams as a whole and i I think it even lives up to this day with the new owners i mean just look at what what uh russell did in in spa Mm -hmm. yeah he got himself second was it pretty no it was awful it was terrible to watch but he got second he still did it yeah, yeah, still did. I say at the end of the day, that is a second place finish for Williams. That is one of the podiums that was that happened during uh, during while well, well, while Frank Williams was alive. That was it. It's again, it wasn't glamorous. I'm sure that final podium. Final podium. Yeah. Hmm. Very good. Point. I'm just trying to think. Were, were Williams ever glamorous? Have Williams? Um, can you think of a time where they have out glamoured like Ferrari or McLaren? Oh, when you think of names like Nigel Mansell, no, really? it's synonymous with glamour. And that hat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, generally, I'm generally struggling to think of a time where they were more glamorous than say Ferrari or McLaren um, McLaren being the best of comparison well Frank Frank was a genius by getting uh, uh, Arab money essentially with uh, Fly Saudia but that wasn't used in the glamorous way that was used just to improve the car uh, I don't think any of that was used for party going I think Frank Williams did not give a shit about the actual appearance of his team as a glamour event I think he just wanted to win races so yeah, I, I can't actually think of a moment. Possibly BMW Williams, maybe. I don't know. That's also BMW aren't what I'd call glamorous either. Hmm. Not really. So that was the Nico Rosberg era, right? Or part yeah. of that? Montoya at the start. By the end, it was a uh, Weber and Rosberg. I think with the last pairing. Well, maybe Nakajima. Wait, is this under BMW? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was Heidfeld and Weber in 05, then went to Cosworth in 06 with Weber and Rosberg. There you go. Yeah. Oh, and then it went to RBS as the main sponsor of the car, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah that, that was... Um, that, was that, that was that was Rosberg, Williams, and, and I can do that I'm thinking of. And then somewhat inexplicably went to Toyota in 2007, therefore introducing Nakajima for 0809. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Hey. Pedro, we've not heard you talk for a while. Well, at least not for, <laughs> not not over the top of me and Alex. Uh, what's your next one? Oh, um, his first double with Alan Jones, just because that's it's it's such a mythical tale for me. I mean, I haven't found much video of it online, and I was of course not born, not even close to being born. So that's you know that's the one thing I sort of put in my head as you know the dominant Williams and. I haven't seen it and I probably will never see it because, as I said, it's quite hard to come by. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like Michael Jordan's flu game, stuff like that. Yeah. Hmm. I think Alan Jones worked so well with uh, Patrick Head, I think more as important as working Frank Williams to make that car as good as it was. Because it's a DFE engine. It's decent enough, isn't it? Most people won races in them. So it's all about the car. And... To beat, I think it was, was it Bram? Was it PK and the Bram he beat? I want to say at Canada. Would, I'm That's gonna, when he won it. I'm going to pin Oliver and go, yes, you're absolutely right. Yes. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Good gamble. Good gamble. <laughs> also, uh, him selling the team, I, I, I do, I got to put that in my top moments because that's just Frank William doing everything he could until the very last moment of his ownership. To save yeah. the team, and I think he left that in very good hands. Yeah, yes, he did. He's he's put he's when he sold the team, he actually put it in better, well, as good as hands as it was under his tut- tutelage. Mm-hmm. So it's 
is what you want. Mm. And I will say, I'm going to, I think Claire Williams will probably get a bad rap for being the one in charge when it went wrong, wrong for Williams, but it's not her fault. I wouldn't well, blame her at all. Also, you've got to realise Claire Williams had a significant amount of success. I mean, would you be saying at the end of 2015 oh, yeah. that Claire... Would you be saying at the end of 2015 that Claire Williams had, uh, had, had managed the team badly? Not even slightly, not at all. No. Exactly. So it's, yeah, uh, it's just want to put it out on record that no, she shouldn't be getting any stick for no. failing the Williams team. No, it's yeah. circumstances yeah. that can't be helped when you're in, independent. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Uh, Alex, you got another moment? Oh, I think we're going back in time again. And. It comes from watching the GP500 documentary over and over again. And it's a documentary that was taped, that was on VHS when me and Chris were growing up. And I watched it probably in the hundreds of times. And they spent, it was like an hour long documentary. And they spent a good five, six, a good five, ten minutes actually on the 1987 British Grand Prix, which was... And to start off, it's a Williams 1-2 at the Home Grand Prix. Love that. But it's also the one where Mansell came back from like 20 seconds behind after an emergency pit stop and overtook PK on the penultimate lap with that move into Stowe. That Stowe, move. right? Yeah, it was in Stowe. And he, it was, uh, the move Alex is talking about is the, the dummy, wasn't it? Yes. Yep, it's the dummy. Oh, he's dummy. Yeah. yeah, he's dummy to the outside of PK. PK's fallen for it and he's thrown it down the inside. They almost touched. And you've got James Hunt's commentary, ooh, and Mansell's through, and it's perfect. It's a perfect moment. And it's, yeah, it's, it's probably one of the most legendary passes you can find. Yes. In Williams especially, history, let alone F1 history. Especially considering the cars at that point as well, definitely. <laughs> well, that's like a thousand horsepower, wasn't it, in qualifying mode? Which is just <laughs> mental. <laughs> and that's without electrical assistance. That's yeah. pure yeah. engine and fuel. Pure grunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, is, yeah. It's what I think of Williams in that era, along with the tire going pop. We won't talk about that moment. <laughs> I, I don't now, think we will. Now, one moment, and I know you, get, you guys are go, both going to give me grief for this, but I don't care because it's one of my favourite moments. In 2017... I took a flight to Hungary, and on this flight to Hungary, there were some mild rumours that Felipe Massa might have been fitting a little bit under the weather. In my suitcase, I had my favourite Williams shirt packed. It was bright white, had the Martini logo down on the side, and I was happily wearing it when the news broke on Saturday, that wonderful Saturday, that Paul Duresta would be replacing Felipe Massa for the Hungarian Grand Prix. Now, I know... I know, of course, for those of you who know WTHK, that um, obviously I'm a bit of a thre- bit of a Duresta fanboy. Obviously, however, on a significant note, to see my favourite driver racing for my favourite F1 team whilst wearing that kit on my first foreign holiday, uh, sorry, sorry for my first foreign Grand Prix, was un- it was indescribable. Uh, but that's not the moment for me. The moment for me is that Duresta didn't actually get to drive the car in any of the practices. The first time he drove that car was in qualifying. And yes, he got knocked out in Q1, but he out-qualified Marcus Ericsson. So, one of my favourite moments. 
is my favourite driver in my favourite team not coming last in his first session in that damn car. I remember standing in the grand, in the grandstands, being the only guy cheering when DeResta came across the line. <laughs> not last! And I remember going, yes! With my Williams shirt on, with thousands of Ferrari fans behind me going, what the hell is happening? And I was like, that's it, qualifying can end. I don't care anymore. And I went to the bar and I got the best drink I've ever had. <laughs> and I defy you to tell me that's not the best Williams moment I've ever seen. <laughs> the way you say it, the way you told it, it makes it the best moment ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, it's um, it's bizarre. It's one of those things. Obviously, to see the rest of driving again as a big fan was a lovely thing. To see him in a Williams was a particularly good thing. To see actually something happen and pull through, that's kind of Williams at the like you know the complete like yeah, at, at a complete moment where all of a sudden you have to pull something together, and somehow they did. Yes, I'm talking about 19th over 20th, but still, I mean that's. That's what kind of sums it up for me. It's just the ability to pull through in the situation. When stuff's kind of shit, and I'm being a little bit melodramatic here, but I don't care. It was just a wonderful experience, and it was something... Alex knows this. When something happens in Formula 1 that's significant, I jump out of my seat. The first time this happened was the first time I watched the race live with Hamilton and Massa going into the final corner on the 2011 British Grand Prix. I jumped up, so excited, not knowing that I almost dropped my phone down the entire crack of the grandstand. That was one of those moments where I didn't have control over, over anything. I jumped up, not aware of what was happening. I was just so damn happy. And that's what sticks with me. That's what sticks with me. Like, I didn't really have it with Maldonado winning in 2012. I was kind of happy about that. I didn't have it with any of the podiums. I didn't have it with Felipe Massa getting pole position in Austria. But with this one... Oh God, I'm going to say the word that every British guy loves. With this one plucky performance, I jumped up and it was one of my favourite moments. And it's That's Williams to me, basically. That's what sums it up. I know it's silly. I know it's typecast. It's screw it. It makes me happy. And that's that's what I think of when I think Williams. That's uh, It's very hard to argue the point on that one, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> If you put it that way, yes, it is very hard to argue. <laughs> I will say, I, I would say that is probably one of the most tenuous moments. However, the way you've argued it, Chris, I think it's now one of the best. <laughs> Hey, there we go. <laughs> I do gotta say, I have a special place in my heart for uh, Maldonado's win. Yes. Yeah, same. Not because I'm a Maldonado fan, but to me, if I look at it now, it's this one big if. What if Maldonado's form would have continued and then join Sergio Perez down the line and actually have like two Latin American drivers? The issue is Maldonado's form did continue, but half of his form is crashing. If if you think about Valencia and you think about Singapore and you think about a few moments, he, I'm not lying, Maldonado was a very quick drive on his day. And he proved that on numerous occasions. Compared to Bruno Senna, no offense to Bruno Senna, I mean, he's, a, he's a very fine racer in his, in his element, but Maldonado was on fire that year. It was just a shame that he was also on fire in the connecting with other cars side of things Valencia mm. was a surefire podium essentially and that was thrown yes. away I feel uh, Singapore could have been something a little bit more but the car didn't have quite the race pace and then would have been a few moments where maybe he could have locked himself into a position where had he not been in an incident which he got into numerous times like Austria, Australia for example 
the first race of the year, crashing on the last lap, and was he fifth? Yeah, fifth. Fifth. Yes, he was fifth. Mm, I think it's lucky we got the win, to be fair. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's a very talented racing driver, but his pension for crashing let him down, unfortunately. That that could have been a real fairy tale, se- a t- fairy tale season for Williams as opposed to just being a fairy tale win. That's why he said, if, you know, what if he hadn't crashed so many freaking cars? What if he hadn't turned, uh, well, he wasn't rhyming for Williams back then, but you remember he turned um, Esteban Gutierrez, he turned him upside down. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah, Lotus, Bahrain. Bahrain and Lotus, wasn't it? And that's a problem. Moment. Yep. Mm. The question I always had with 2012 Williams is if they'd kept Rubens Barrichello rather oh. than putting Senna in the car, what would have happened there? Mm. How good? How many points would they have got? And I think it would have been quite a lot more. Yeah, possibly not in the street circuits because I think Maldonado had Rubens covered. But on your av- your normal circuit, yeah. I think yeah. How many? Eight, how many eight place, eight place, seven place, six place finishes were missed out on there? I think it's more a question of how many top fives were missed out on, which is probably that bit more painful. Uh, right, Alex, I believe we've got one more from you before an ending note. Uh, what's your last one, Alex? It is George Russell crying at ninth place at uh-huh. Hungary this year. Oh, yeah. Because okay. it's, it's a, you know, well, as we talked about Williams, the, just the niceness of it. But for someone to care that much about getting ninth place for the team, well, it wasn't, I know it wasn't it's been a long time, but it it's, it, I would that say race it's, does also include the... I'm going to sacrifice myself for Latifi here, make sure Latifi gets points, and he's still got them as well. I say I wouldn't say he's crying for ninth place. I'd say he's crying for eighth and ninth place. It was the, I say he was crying for yes, the team that's a result. Is a team result, not his result. Yeah. And you, yeah. you, you said it yourself perfectly. The fact that obviously I know Russell is trying to advertise himself to Mercedes, but still with the fact he's willing to go on radio and say like many racing drivers would struggle to finish behind their teammates with their first championship points on the line to say screw it. Give this guy more points. I don't give a damn. I mean, you guys know I'm a massive George Russell fan. Um, but as I was saying, the spirit of Williams with uh, the rest is somehow plucking through to ninth, uh, plucking through to ninth. There's always been quite a good team element for Williams, not including Nelson Piquet and Mansell. <laughs> um, but in quite a few scenarios, there's been a nice team element there. And I think that sums up very nicely, especially with the struggles they've been having recently. I mean, having been a Formula One fan since uh, Williams getting some fantastic podiums, plummeting. And now slowly rebuilding. I thought McLaren was bad. Woo! Williams is something a little bit different. I think, yeah, I don't think there are many people who would not have denied that moment of joy for both Latifi and Russell, especially Russell, who had thrown away points on a few occasions beforehand. But I think you're right. Yeah, just the sheer joy and just the team he's built himself up with. I mean, this could be something we look back on in a couple of years and go, George Russell, the numerous time world champion. And we're reflecting on him getting his first points with tears in Hungary. That's... Mm. I think that says more about the team than it does about the man, to have that reaction. To care that much, absolutely. Do you reckon Mazepin would have that reaction if he scored points for Haas? Not for the team. <laughs> no. He'd cry, but he'd cry for himself, you know, taking this much trash from everyone. Exactly. And getting points, yeah. Mm. Now, we're going to end up this video quickly, but I feel like before we go, Pedro, there's something you'd like to say? Yes, I mean, I, I think the one last um, thought I can muster, or the one last reflection I can make, is that there will never be another Frank Williams. And I mean that in every sense of the way. 
there will never be another story like his. There will probably never be another team like Williams. And if there is, they'll probably fail at some point. Like we've seen it many, many times over the last decade or so. And he will be greatly missed by absolutely everyone. And I am really, really sorry for myself uh, for not actually having the chance to meet him. Even though I've been to races, I had never had the chance to meet uh, Sir Frank Williams. Absolutely. Um, so on what has been a relatively somber episode of The Brothers Hunt featuring Pedro, uh, all I can do is say good night, uh, good evening, or good morning, wherever you're watching this from. And this has been a memorial of Frank Williams, 1942 to 2021. Thank you very much for watching. And now for um, a bit more of a less somber topic, we have <laughs> to discuss, and actually before we do all that, thank you very much for everyone who watched us in the video and everyone who listened to that same thing, a uh, uh, tribute to Frank Williams in this episode of WTHK. Now we do have to talk about the upcoming race at Jeddah. I, I think you heard us talk about it. Um, at least um, Alex and I talked about it. Chris is finally back after uh, missing in action for like two episodes or an episode and a half. Glad episode to have and a half, back. I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Not a problem. I'm glad to have you back. So... <laughs> Oh, not a problem. Shame you're back. <laughs> <laughs> I need your I thoughts. I can't work out who's being insulted there. Me or you, Chris. <laughs> I need your thoughts on, on, on the whole track, first of all, because we didn't get those from you last week. Uh, oh, we're talking Qatar or Jeddah? Jeddah. Right? Jeddah. Oh, Jeddah. You missed on Qatar. Uh, Jenna, I'm intrigued by. Um, Alex uh, brought this up on Twitter. I didn't see it until Alex uh, re-blogged, uh, retweeted it. Three DRS zones. Ooh, they're desperate to make some overtaking happen. Um, I think, of course, with a street circuit, as we know, it's going to be an interesting... Uh, a new street circuit is always an interesting... Always an interesting situation. It's not quite like a regular circuit where you get a kind of basic idea. And with it being completed so close to the deadline, I'm quite intrigued about the surface... Because there's a thing in the FIA that said each track needs to be ready 90 days before, and there needs to be an inspection 90 days before it can be raced upon. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're bending the rules pretty significantly here because 90 days ago, I don't think the track was even started. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm I'm wondering if there's going to be some strange anom anomaly here. We almost had it with Austin. We thought there might be a bit, it might be, the bumpiness might be a bit of a standout thing here. And it didn't really amount to anything in particular. We saw the curves in Qatar. Um, being a bit of a hiccup in some places. I mm. wonder if there's something here that can't necessarily be predicted straight off the bat, but it's going to turn out to be a little bit of a game changer. And of course, if there is something that's going to be a bit of a game changer, the penultimate race, ooh, that could be controversial. See, my, my biggest fear is that there will be no grip. Uh, yeah. No grip in a track like that that essentially has you know the same sort of Monaco-esque or, or um, Singapore kind of stuff surrounded by walls. That it's, that could be dangerous. Yeah, it's one thing to do it in Turkey on the basis you've got a load of runoff. Herbin Tilke made it, so you've got basically the size of the Sahara Desert around the outside of the track. Here, you're gonna just. They may not be the highest speed crashes, but there could be a lot of them if there is that little grip going. Nothing, Dave. This I when I was um well I say when I was I still do it. 
when I do lots of races on the um, the sim I've got here uh, for F1, I find Monaco like a scrape knee sort of track where you go off slightly, you scrape your knee. It's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it does kind of hurt. So you move, lose a bit of your front wing here and there. I feel like Jeddah is going to be precisely that. I don't think there's the opportunity for a big smash at some point, absolutely. I'm just wondering if there's going to be one incident where a bit of that crucial front wing goes. And it's, it's something David Coulthard's always said. If you're meant to assume that everything on F1 car does something, if you lose a bit of it, therefore you should essentially be at a disadvantage. I'm wondering if this will be the track where one slight off moment is going to just tear off a little bit of a front wing. A little bit of contact unnecessarily is going to just lose a little bit. I mean, honestly, it makes me think of Patro Ward at the uh, finale of the IndyCar. I can see that sort of move happening here. And let's face it, with Hamilton and Verstappen, let, I, I, mm, it's, it's, we know Abu Dhabi, even though there's changes, we kind of have a good prediction of what that could be like as a race. Uh, Jeddah, with it being so close, with it being new, with this much pressure at this point in the championship, this could be the flashpoint. And let's face it, if we can end up with Verstappen's car on top of Hamilton in Monza, what the hell could happen here? Well, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily need to be the top two cars. If anything, I think the veteran drivers will do well, or at least mm. they won't crash their car into the wall. Because they get the experience to try, they learn the tracks faster, I suppose. Yes, yeah. We you said as well, but the thing is that there's we've got to take into account. So sometimes naturally people make mistakes. Uh, Mick Hackner, Imola. Uh, what year was that? Where coming out the final corner and just lost the control of the car and just smashed into the front, into the barrier on the left hand side. What year was that, Alex? I want to say 1999. I yeah, something like that. It, it strikes me as something where that could possibly happen. Not necessarily side-by-side racing, but just something catches somebody off. And this could be just one of the, it seems like one of those examples because they don't, the drivers don't have the ability to hang back on this race. If you think about it, the, the, the two title protagonists, they can't back up. Uh, Ferrari, McLaren, they can't back up at all. Alpine and, uh, sorry, Alpine and Toro Rosso, they're also in a very close battle. No one really has the ability to back off here. It's getting to a very desperate scenario for so many different races that suddenly throwing in a new track that's only just been completed. I get, there's something about this mix which is making me slightly uncomfortable. I'd like to talk about it next week Next week, and be say, oh, I was completely wrong there. Something here is striking me. I, don't, I can't specifically say what it is in particular. There's just something that doesn't seem quite right right now. It's, it's, it's just odd. I mean, there's too much newness in the... In the air, let's put it that way. There's too much new things thrown together at once at a very important moment in the you know in the schedule in the championship. Yeah, at this point, which has been the closest championship was since 2016, um, and even then, that was against teammates. The first time it's been like this since 2012. Do you really want the the hangover of a new race? Which I'm not saying it's a gimmick race. I'm so, I, I don't want to say that. I, that's not what I'm trying to come across as. But a race which is clearly pandering to certain locales, do we want that to be the deciding moment of the championship? Because let's face it, if something happens here, and even if it goes down to the wire, technically in Abu Dhabi, if there's something that can be drawn back to Jeddah, that's what the people are like. Even in 2016, people are still going on about Malaysia being the, the flashpoint. 
Malaysia was a Malaysia was a renowned track by then. It still is and should bloody well be on the calendar. A new track that's far too much of a scapegoat. It's far too easy to bring that and go, okay, for the next 10 years, every Hamilton and Bush Chapman fan would say, yeah, but it was Jeddah. Jeddah did us wrong. We got robbed at Jeddah and I've got a shirt to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't call it a, you said you didn't want to call it a gimmick race. I'll call it that way. I'll do it for you. It's a gimmick race. <laughs> it is. I love you, Pedro. You're brilliant. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if you guys watch WWE. Yeah, which one? Is that the wrestling one? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, the clearest sign that somebody doesn't watch it. Or is that the wrestling one? Or is that the wrestling golf? one? <laughs> WWE does something similar. They always held, uh, they have pay per view events held in Saudi Arabia. And they're nothing but glorified. Uh, this, there's this thing called house show, which is those shows you do in small venues just for people to watch. They're, they're tiny shows with non important wrestling matches. And they do essentially that, but for entire cricket stadiums in Saudi Arabia. Okay. This right. feels like the motorsport equivalent of that. Yeah. Hmm. The, the why, is this, why is this worse? This, why is this worse than Bahrain or Abu Dhabi? Uh, I'd say I'd say because it's not a street circuit. Abu Dhabi, no, Abu Dhabi isn't really, is it? It's almost. Say, if it was a, if it was just a, a made racetrack, then yes, okay, at least there's some sort of infrastructure there. The fact mm-hmm. it's a street circuit, it's like we'll do it here, like Miami. Don't get me wrong, I love the idea of a Grand Prix in Miami. It does seem like oh, Hard Rock Cafe will put a race there. And I think the last time they did that, and it worked incredibly well, was Caesar's Palace. That was a really good race, if I recall. Like people loved Caesar's Palace. Oh wait, no, they didn't. There we go. I was looking for that. <laughs> oh, no, I thought you were being serious there. It seems like one of my favourite gifts, and I use this frequently with most people I talk to. It's a, it's a, it's an image of a child, and they've got a little box in front of them, and on the box they have lots of different shapes. And the kid has the cylinder and it's looking at the square hole and it's going, yes, yes, it's going in. And bizarrely, it doesn't, despite all the force. So they lift off the lid and throw it in and then close the lid again. This sounds like this, for me, feels like one of those scenarios, right? A race in Saudi Arabia, a race in Saudi... Okay, screw it. Take off the lid. We'll make it happen. Close the lid. (laughs) I mean, that that explains it way better than my WWE analogy. I think your WWE analogy works. However, it's just not hit the right audience on this podcast. Exactly. Yeah, that's, me what, and Chris. that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Guys, we're all about the memes here at WTHK. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, nothing wrong with a bit of memes. Now, I have a prediction for Saudi Arabia. Red flag. Uh, well, obviously. Yeah, I, 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 I think Vettel's going to do very well here. I think this is kind of Sebastian Vettel's territory. Not necessarily Aston Martins, just Vettel himself. Vettel seems to work well on these sorts of tracks. I'm My outlandish prediction is Vettel's top five, possibly. Uh, that's going to be my prediction, my, my wild card prediction for this weekend. Jesus. Um, that's a Jesus. big statement. Jesus. That's a big I, statement. I yes. I like it, but it's a big statement. I'm trying to come up with something similar. Um, oh, I've got one. If you want outlandish prediction, I'm predicting less than 10 finishes. 
Oh. Now, something I found interesting. Talking about less than 10 finishes. Do you remember the, was it 2014 Australian Grand Prix where Button almost got points by just existing? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> by just surviving. They're just not... Not somehow not getting that air Honda engine to blow up. That you could be how if we drive just revive was cool. <laughs> that could be how Schumacher gets points this year. Just surviving. Yes. I think it's, yeah, this is perfect Schumacher points territory, I would say. Because if if we do think it's gonna be less grip and walls that close and cars going that fast, the attrition rate will be through the roof for modern F one. So yeah, I'm I would it's outlandish, but yeah, I can see it being less than 10 finishes. Good call. See, I'm out. Now, now we'll I'm see. We'll find out on Sunday. Yep. Um, here it is. Another podium for Fernando Alonso. Ooh, you're going with the uh, experienced driver coming to a new track, therefore having a bit of an advantage about, yep. about it. Nice. I like the thinking. Because it is it's, it's him... To be honest, him, Vettel, Hamilton, and I'm now putting a bit of a snap in that category of people you expect to do well on a new circuit. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I think it's... I can't think of anyone else who's going to suddenly come out of the box and come out with a third place. Latifi. Latifi <laughs> gets third place. That sounds more cool, serious than some Yeah, Latifi. King Latifi. <laughs> Goat Latifi. Goat Latifi. Now, <laughs> um, something uh, before we go into our, our main predictions, something I'd like to just bring up quick is a conversation. What the hell has happened to McLaren? They just got unlucky in Qatar, I'll be honest. Yes. But I, I think that would have been third place. I think that Norris would have got the podium in that. And if not, he would have been fourth. For the sake of my own emotions, I wouldn't entertain that thought. <laughs> Alonso got third, and that's that. Yeah, yeah. Bottas didn't get a puncture. Perez wasn't rubbish. It's <laughs> getting spicy between. I'm Britain sorry. And Mexico, the, the, yeah? this is, the issue is <laughs> the issue is not Alonso. The issue is the disparity between the cars. Hmm. You put you put Alonso in that Red Bull that Perez is in. He wins more races, yeah, absolutely. Than Perez has. Mm-hmm. Comes, he gets a, more podiums as a minion, probably still in the championship fight. But he wouldn't be such a good teammate, I believe. Oh, it'd be awful. Could you imagine him and Max in the same team? That'd be amazing <laughs> to watch, but it wouldn't go well. <laughs> two things before we jump into our main predictions. One. Landonors will avoid Texas like the Black Black from now on. Fair play to him. Every, I'd do it if I had the money. Oh, <laughs> me too. Oh, my, yeah. No questions asked. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. And the other thing, something happened with the WCU driver, and you guys were about to tell me. Yes. Um, so the WCU's Mali happened with a double header in a uh, Circuit of the Americas. It was the support race for the Formula One. And uh, Abby Eaton, um, who was, uh, I think she's she's turned up in quite a few British TV programs. She's a British uh, racing driver. Um, she suffered a very bizarre incident. And what, uh, she, she raced for a little bit before having to pull up and basically retire. She basically knocked out, I think, two of her vertebrae from the sausage curbs. And it wasn't, basically, she hit one sausage curb and the car, like, 
uh, Mark Webber in uh, China, the car, the, the front of the car, sh- like shoved up, like, went right up into the air. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that she impacted on another sausage curb behind it. So oh. she oh, oh, she didn't land on flat ground. She landed on another sausage curb, and that basically screwed up her back. And um, we we heard there's a, ba- a quite a significant incident. We didn't really see much. There's now been a video released where she's talking to somebody, and she is completely prone with a neck brace and all of this like equipment around her just to keep herself completely straight. And it's now going to be another three months until she'll be able to walk again, basically, essentially like unaided without like you know this equipment around her. And the main incident is not the fact that she went off while I went on Sashka. It's the fact she landed on another one after it. And after the incidents we've seen, especially in Monza as well, why do we still have these sausage curbs? They're clearly not working as a deterrent because people are still going wide on them. And the issue is when it comes into people significantly injuring themselves, especially landing on one and that and causing significant injury. The main, the main thing lots of people are talking about is just bring back the ravel traps. Um, I know we've, we, the, the, fun, the parabolica, I think it is, and Monza, the fact they took that way they, was a big, a big thing. But I, I'm kind of agreeing. I understand why sausage curbs are there. I can understand what they're trying to do. But clearly now it's not working, right? Like, no, it's not. It is crap. And, and, and yeah. it's a very, very uh, weird instance because I've seen him in other series and they don't work anywhere. Not even NASCARs can take such a script well. Yeah. It's, it seems yeah, like, I can't think of one that would do it. Like, it's the thing. It's, it's, you know it's going to destroy the car. You know it's going to do something. But racers as a whole are always going to take that gamble. Of course they are. So do stand that's actually going to generally slow them down as opposed to throw them into their own potentially cause, as we've seen, significant damage. With Abby Eaton, in her case, there's a significant chance that could have been a lot worse. And we're, we're talking about somebody who has now spent like essentially four months essentially in rehab, like re- repairing her muscles. And it's like, it's like repairing her bloody bones. Uh, yeah. If that was Hamilton... In, oh, sorry, that's Hamilton and Verstappen, and that decided the championship. Do you reckon that would have given it enough sort of, you know, headway? I, it's, I'm struggling to understand why they're still there. We're now seeing literal physical human damage from this. But they're still. You've got, you got to remember the FIA are always at least 10 years behind the modern curve of <laughs> F1. Yeah. And that, as facetious as that sounds, that's also true. It's, they're not very <laughs> quick changing therefore if they if they think more in the cases of the social good more often not people don't get hurt and they do what they're meant to do then they'll keep them and they'll always go with the but the drivers know there it's up to them if they want to drive over them it's they shouldn't be off the track driving over them which mm-hmm. isn't a good excuse but that's the excuse they will use why and when you what's the reason they're getting rid of gravel safety because you're more likely to you, you're more in gravel. If you're going in sideways, you're more likely to roll over and less likely to stop before hitting the barrier. That's the problem with gravel. If you're going 200 mile an hour and you go off, you aren't stopping on that gravel. You're more likely to stop with your brakes locked up and on tarmac. Mm. Okay. There's no traction on. There's no traction on gravel, unlike tarmac. But the, the the way to get around this is remove the sausage curves and put three foot worth of gravel on it. So you've still got the tarmac to slow down. But if tarmac. you do go wide, if you do go wide, you get punished by having gravel on your tires. Yeah. Mm. That's a phenomenally good shout. However, the FIA, even if they hear this, won't listen to it. 
I think I'd we need a ha- hashtag, hashtag Alex for FIA president. There we go. I'd, I'd take that job. I would yeah. take that job right now. <laughs> Alex for president. <laughs> Get me elected again. I'm up for this. How many, again? How many official languages do, does FIA have? Uh, I think it's, ooh. Is it just the one? Or is it I two? Think, isn't it French and English? That's what I thought it probably would be. It's, it's French as a minimum. Right, I don't so, know if English is an official language, but, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. I'll write that hashtag in both languages. For, in the there episode. you go. Now it's all okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a proper campaign we're managing here. I don't know what the French for Alex for President would be. That's quite the simple. Alex for President. I was, I was about to say I'll take your word for it. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> le hashtag Alex le President. <laughs> le Alex for le President. <laughs> no, I no never did French at school. Uh, oh, right. uh, yeah, I, I know it. Uh, yeah, not being quite so silly, but the the presidency is rubbish at the moment with Jean Todd, and I'm it, it can't be. It's not long till he goes, is it? His term's coming up soon, so hopefully we end up with someone with a bit more of a backbone mm-hmm. at the top of the sport. Well, he does have a backbone. It's just a question of whether the decisions are right. Don't say yeah. that again. <laughs> it's, the thing is, John Todd has made me want Max Mosley back as FI president. Those of how, you on the, for you listening on the audio podcast, my eyes are wide. <laughs> yeah, but it's at least Max Mosley had the courage of his convictions and made a decision and stuck with him, even if it was unpopular with the teams. Bizarre, John Todd just doesn't exist and he just doesn't seem to be there anymore or making any decisions. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's like like with many times on this podcast, you surprised me. And that time I did not see that coming. Context for our, our listeners, and I hope we can go on from this. We just removed like five minutes of audio <laughs> because this thing got completely out of hand. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris Alex. got out of hand. Chris got no, out of hand. We were fine. Me and Pedro were talking about me becoming president of the FIA, and then you went and ruined it. <laughs> this is the poll for this week. Who were in the chat? Was it Alex or Chris? You'll never know. <laughs> Jesus, this is our fourth trial, Ray. <laughs> oh, let's not talk about trials. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thing is, let's get back to let's get back on track oh. if we can. Um, <laughs> What was the deal with your Spotify wrapped, um, Chris? And, oh. and team, I haven't been able to uh, watch mine. I saw your I saw your tweet saying that you can access yours and you to get an iPhone. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna check mine. Um, this is the first full year I've had Spotify, and my music tastes are somewhat different. Wait, what? What? Wait, 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 wait. What did you had before? Uh, I just just listened to music via YouTube. I did. I just this was the first time I used Spotify properly. I just had like YouTube or just music I downloaded onto my phone. And on that bombshell, man, never, never mind. <laughs> I think you're showing your age on that one, Pedro. Yeah. So Spotify this year, they do... Every year. Three, why is that a problem for me? Well, <laughs> I would suggest that the majority of the people... <laughs> Good point. The majority of the people listening are going to be going, yeah, Chris is doing everything right. What are you talking about having Spotify for you? They listen to Alex, they Alex listen let's, let's, let's not assume anything <laughs> 
Now, I'm going to assume Pedro is probably with the curve and therefore right, and you and I may be just slightly old-fashioned. <laughs> oh, no, I'm old-fashioned. I know that by the country. I'm, I've still listened to CDs, so. Oh, yeah, that I get. That's fine. Yeah. I, I'd collect um, them when I listen to them. Uh, but yes, I looked at my Spotify wraps and I listened to quite a lot of soundtracks and such. And this year, my uh, Spotify was like, if you were a film character, these would be the films, this, these would be the songs that played during certain moments. Uh, so my opening credits themed, well, uh, my opening credits theme was Follow Your Bliss by the B-52s. Um, the song playing as I proclaim my love in the rain was the Living Deadlights by Aha. But then the song playing as I de- defeat the ancient vengeful spirit was the Formula One theme by Brian Tyler. <laughs> now the issue is, I listen to that song, do, I do listen to that song quite a bit. But Spotify has now realised, oh, this is when he listens to it. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> something I do find quite interesting, by the way, I gave me, it gave me my top five songs of the year, the top five songs I've listened to the most. Yes. Number one, Follow Your Bliss by the B-52s. Number two, Forever, Forever in Blue Jeans by uh, Neil Diamond. No judgment, Alex. Uh, number three, uninspired by the canals. Number four, with 125 listens. I listened to Daytona. Daytona. <laughs> 125 times. That's number four. That is a top <laughs> quality top five, and I have I haven't even got to the last song. Please go ahead. Uh, the last song. Uh, was the GoldenEye Overture by Eric Serra. Now, on that note, as you know, guys, I bring it to every podcast. I'm a massive James Bond fan. I was in the top 0.1% of people who listened to John Barry this year, John Barry being the main composer of all the Bond, uh, of the majority of Bond films, the top 0.1% worldwide. But, I mean, I'd expect that to be a little bit more. Top 0.01%. Exactly. <laughs> well, the issue is now I want to find a vengeful spirit and defeat them whilst listening to, you know, Brian Tyler's F1 thing. The problem is I, I just have visions of Crash Bandicoot and N Cortex appears and then suddenly you get the Brian Tyler theme. <laughs> exactly. That'd be perfect. Can you imagine? End of Spyro 2 trying uh, to defeat Ripto and then you end up with the Fallout 1 theme. <laughs> <laughs> every moment, every 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 impact of the punch. There you go. Right, we need do, to talk about our predictions quickly. Due to our um, comical and breakdown, we have ten minutes left in the show, so we got to move on with our predictions. Who starts? Uh, uh, top three. Um, uh, I want it to be a close race. I don't think it's going to be. I think Hamilton's got too much with that Brazil engine there. I think it's going to be Hamilton first, uh, Verstappen second, neither with the fastest lap. Um, ooh, Bottas third. I think I think this is basically going to be the... I, I, despite what we've said, I think the main incidents aren't going to affect the title battle. I think this is actually going to be the perfect... Um, this is going to be the perfect setup for a close finish at Abu Dhabi. I, to be fair, in all honesty, I want it to be Verstappen winning just to make it a little bit more of a hurdle for Hamilton to overtake. But I can't see how Hamilton won't win this race unless it's a unless there's a an incident which involves a crash. If it's based on poor pure performance, this is Hamilton's. I feel. Mm-hmm. I'm going to agree. It's going to be a Hamilton win. I, I think it would be. 
I think it could be a Mercedes track, so I'm going Bottas second and Verstappen third. Hmm. Giving Hamilton the lead okay. going into the final race. Interesting. Very interesting. By like a point or two. Hamilton wins. He manages to keep his uh, his helmet on his head instead of just changing it to another one. Um, ah. I think we discussed that last week, didn't we, <laughs> Alex? We did, yeah, we discussed it in the last podcast, I think, didn't we? So Hamilton wins. Verstappen goes second and third, as I mentioned before, is for Fernando Alonso. Bottas touches the wall and he destroys the, the, the front wing of his car and his race is over. I, don't, I, I think Schumacher getting points as well is a genuine oh, yeah. possibility, as we discussed earlier, for the attritional mm-hmm. rate of the race. And yeah, because I don't think Mazepin will be fast enough to beat Schumacher, let alone make it to the end of the Grand Prix to get any points that may be on offer. Mazepin's not <laughs> fast for anything. I know, I know, you, I know. You've got the uh, thing about there being less than uh, less than ten finishes. Do we really think eleven people are going to crash out? I, I don't think so. I think they can. I, I think they can do that. We, we are overdue a stupid attritional race. <laughs> yeah. One thing for me personally, I think three Duracells, especially two and three, which are so close together, are going to cause havoc. Something's going to yeah. happen there. And also, like DRS with the sector two. It, this one is the the RS detection zone too. There's quite a few turns there. If somebody gets it wrong going into those corners and then opens DRS, that's going to really screw it up. I know um, it's a, kind of a bad example. Uh, Ericsson at Silverstone uh, into turn one. Um, they he slightly misjudges it there. If you slightly misjudge it into numerous corners, if you get the first part of the corner wrong and he's trying to, and someone spends the next two corners trying to correct it, I can see that also being an issue. I think there are zones here are going to be, there's going to be some contention there. Something's going Chris, to happen. It, have you played, have you played Jeddah on the F1 game yet, Chris? No, I haven't. I haven't, no. no. I will say that little section is, doesn't look as bad when you're driving it as when it looks on a map. Okay. It's still right. twisty, but it's not horrifying. Okay, noted. No, it's, it, it's still not brilliant. It's like when um, they had DRS open around the first two corners at Silverstone, which yeah. was mental. Lunatic. So it, it does open itself up for a someone doing something innocuous but becoming something massive, as you say. But I th- yeah, it's. I would hope the majority of the drivers have enough skill to deal with it. Mm. Guys, we are missing a poll for the show. The first thing that came to mind was uh, your prediction of having eleven cars retiring. Yes, do that. Yeah, Uh, will the will the finishes be uh, less than ten or more than ten? I was going to say, how many um, answers can you have on the poll? Is it a binary yes or no, or is it? No, we can have. It could be an open answer. Uh, You can have a poll with as many options as you want. And you can also do a Q&A, but it's more of like a survey, not a, not a poll. Or Let's do it. Did like- one for, so you've got four options. So you've got less than 10 finishes, uh, 11 to 14 finishes, then 15 to 17 finishes and 18 plus. I was going to say, should, should, we do, should we do a qualifying poll, but a race? So it's uh, Q1, but the race, Q2, but the race, or Q3 for the amount of finishes. <laughs> no, nah, that's a bit too What do you mean? Yeah, I know what you mean, Chris, but that's complicated. Yeah. I think. Oh, ignore me forever. 
<laughs> like you be quiet enough for us to let you ignore you. Hey! Oh, oh how dare you? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is that a wrap for a show, guys? Hell I yeah. I think we is. might be there. I think we're there. I don't know how we're here, but we did get it. Uh, we made it. That's quite the accomplishment this week. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Thank you very much for subscribing. Why you? La- what did I do? You laughed. Me or Chris? You did. I didn't mean to. Okay, I thought, it, I, thought- I was just I was just thinking of Chris and earlier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, guys. Thank you very much for subscribing. Please like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you here next week. <laughs>